Good evening, everyone. It is 7.30, according to the heathens who govern Apple Corporation anyway, so we'll begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, I praise your name, for you have hidden so many things from the wise and the learned, and Reveal them to the child, like, yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. Therefore, during this time of grace, help us to grow in knowledge, faith, and confidence of the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas the Apostle, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening to all for our sort of kickoff of the renewed adult faith formation. Just as a little sketch, I don't want to spend too much time on this. But practicalities, we have three semesters, spring, summer, and fall. Those are basically from Easter until Memorial Day, from June until before Labor Day, and then from like mid-September until just before Thanksgiving. During the wintertime when there is Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, There will be a book that people can read individually, but not any winter courses. During the spring and fall semesters, they'll be on Tuesday evenings. During the summer semester, they'll be on Wednesdays when they would normally be faith formation, but that's sort of a different day of the week that might be better for some. Uh, Yes, please. So is this just like for this one year? Uh, It's hopefully to be on, it is ongoing. We have it scheduled ongoing till the end of the world or we just stop doing it all right so there's plenty to learn once we've all know the catholic faith backwards and forwards then we'll stop all right so this particular semester is focused on the resurrection if you saw in the bullish the the bulletin the published topic it's the resurrection and such and such pointing to how the resurrection of our lord jesus is foundational to so many of the aspects of our life. There is no textbook as such. I will mention some books that if you wish to uh, check out or purchase yourself, I think would be useful. All the books that I will recommend are books that I personally think are worth owning, not must own, but are worth having in your personal library. But there's not a need to, there's no reading assignments or things like that, right? This all is predicated, of course, on what St. Paul, who is not a witness to the resurrection himself, rightly says. First letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, starting on verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached, is raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain 
and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, then of all people we are the most to be pitied. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, then of all people we are the most to be pitied. So the topic of today's lecture the resurrection and its enduring marks. St. Paul puts it all together. The enduring mark, in a very real way, of the resurrection is the existence of the Christian church. People will love to point out the many foibles of the history of the Christian church. True enough, and yet, here we are. It is humorously said that you can tell the might of God and the truth of Catholicism that he chose to plant the worldly headquarters of his church dead smack in the middle of Italy, where full of the most foolish people in the world, all right? And if the Italians haven't been able to destroy the church in the last 500 years, then surely it is divine, right? That's a joke for Italians, all right? If you've ever been to Italy and seen their bureaucratic mechanism, you would understand what they're talking about. Not so much scandal, really, just the humanity of it all, hmm? So St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is just being very plain. Now I make that quotation because there can be, and I think there is growing, what you might call a worldly Christianity, a for this world only Christianity. When Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, he says to the apostles, this is the Gospel of St. Mark, Forgiveness of sins is to be preached in my name, beginning in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. You are witnesses of these things. Right? The resurrected Christ says, Forgiveness of sins is to be preached in my name, beginning in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. That is the great enduring mark. In a very real way, that those apostles... Peter, who famously, if you know the scriptures, denied Christ three times at his trial. Judas the traitor, that gives ten remaining. Of the ten remaining, only one of them, St. John, was present at the crucifixion. All the rest fled. Men who clearly did not understand you know those passages... Uh, one city wouldn't have Christ in. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven from them? No. You're thinking as men do, not as God does. It says in the Gospels, he kept talking about how the Son of Man must be handed over to men, be persecuted, and die on the third day, be raised. And it says in the Scriptures, they kept discussing amongst themselves what rising from the dead meant. So the uniqueness of these men who self-reportedly 
fled, denied, after the resurrection, give their lives for it, right? Are all martyred, except for the only one who's not martyred is the one who stood by the cross, St. John, right? All the other apostles are martyred for testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. So all these men who before the cross and the resurrection fled, were cowardly, were worldly, wanted to exercise power in this world, after the resurrection are martyred. Now, did they get any worldly power? No, none of them made money after the resurrection. Did they have any worldly status? No, none of them were well regarded after the resurrection. Did curry them political favor or religious institutional favor? No, not one. There was no benefit to testifying to this resurrection. For that, right? You might say, you know, well, in 12th century Europe, there was benefit. Sure, fair enough. But in first century Palestine and in the first three centuries of Christianity in the Roman Empire, there was only persecution and death for testifying to the resurrection. So why would 11 men give for lives for something that accrued no worldly benefit that they knew was false, right? If, right, what, what Pontius Pilate and the high priest say to the the soldiers at the tomb, say his disciples came and stole his body in the night. So if that were true, why would men who fled while he was still alive and working active miracles, if they knew he was dead, testify that he's alive only to make their lives harder? On a simple intellectual level, that makes absolutely no sense, right? We know all kinds of false religions that make people incredibly wealthy and powerful. Muhammad went from being a nomadic sheep herder to basically ruling a couple million people and having 12 wives. I'm not trying to tease. I'm saying Islam is an instance where the founder of that religion, by its founding, became incredibly wealthy and powerful. No one at the foundation of Christianity became wealthy and powerful, not one, for three and a half centuries. That is the first mark in the testimony. Second mark in testimony, they were never able to produce the body of Jesus. Right? Now, there can be an open question. Is it harder or easier to hide a body in 21st century America or 1st century? All right, now, not to be gross, but... It's a lot more difficult to hide a body in first century Palestine, right? You don't have bleach. You don't have corrosive acids, right? Not, I haven't thought that much about how you get rid of a body. Don't think weirdly of me, all right? But I'm saying you don't have a backhoe to dig a hole in all of the rock. You have Roman occupation everywhere. Remember, in first century Palestine, in Jerusalem, you could not be in possession of a dead body without Roman permission. Here's a little reminder. Dead bodies stink in a city, right? No one ever produces the body of Jesus, ever. The emptiness of the tomb is a real fact and the testimony of those men. So what I would like to do, because I think we have a group of people who believe in the resurrection, right? I'm just saying. Let's root ourselves in that clear understanding. 
Men who were manifestly terrified and afraid. Read St. Peter in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, and then read the letters of St. Peter after, and tell me the resurrection doesn't matter. If you read St. Peter in the Gospels, and then you read St. Peter in the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of St. Peter, the resurrection means everything, absolutely everything. That's why without it, your faith is in vain. But with it is that almighty power. So the church is founded on that singular witness. St. Peter at Pentecost. This Christ, whom you crucified, handing over to lawless men, God raised him from the dead. Of this we are all witnesses. So that's the fundamental lasting mark. It is the essence of the life of the church. So what I'd like to do, because there are also two particular enduring testimonies that as we go through the account of that Resurrection Sunday, I'd like us to be firm about. So I'm going to quote back and forth from the Gospel of St. John and the Gospel of St. Luke. Here's a brief academic pause. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In academic literature, there are what are called the three synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke are the synoptic Gospels, meaning even though they are individual accounts, they have so many similarities amongst the three that it is commonly understood that they were connected to a unified source. Right. That they were telling their own particular accounting of the life of Christ based on a unified source. If you ever, you might hear this in, like the History Channel talks about this a lot, things like, something that's called Q. Right? There's no, this doesn't exist in writing anywhere, but there's a theory out there that whatever this source is the common thread, right? What do the church fathers say this is? The apostles. The apostles are the common thread, right? Then there's the Gospel of St. John, because there are things that are particularly accounted to in the Gospel of St. John that are not accounted in the other Gospels. The washing of the feet at the Last Supper is the most famous one, right? Famously, the Gospel of St. John does not record the institution narrative. It does not record Jesus saying, this is my body, which all the other Gospels do. What it does record is the washing of the feet, which none of the other Gospels do. So that's one of the reasons why the Gospel of St. John is said, didn't draw from that. So you have the three synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of St. John. I have chosen the Gospel of St. Luke because the resurrection accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all incredibly similar. So rather than wit and tittle through all, each one of those, I've chosen Luke. Your own study, you can go through the resurrection accounts and the other Gospels and profit from them. But that's why I'm going back and forth between John and Luke to try to get, as it were, the whole picture in Revelation. So you'll pardon me as I flip back and forth. I won't give every little citation because that could get annoying. I'll just try to let you know when I'm moving. So we'll start with the Gospel of St. John, <clears throat> chapter 20, right? John 20 is the resurrection of Jesus, right? Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away 
from the tomb. Luke 24, because Luke 24 is the resurrection account in the Gospel of St. Luke. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, who is the day? If you refer back in Luke 24, verse 55, that's the last two verses of Luke 23, it says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So these women from Jerusalem who followed him, Matthew and Mark give them names, Mary of Magdala, uh, Mary the wife of Cleopas, Salome, right? So he gives names to these women. Luke does not give them names. John names Mary Magdalene. Right? So early in the morning, these ladies go. It's, it's Sunday, but before the sun is up, while it's still dark. Right? Luke 24, 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. Mary Magdalene, now back to the Gospel of John. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple to whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. So this is in St. John. They took, we don't know. She's clear with other women, right? So St. John is just not recording this. He's talking about Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene goes with these other ladies to the tomb because they're going to do the righteous thing. They didn't have time to anoint the body with all of the spices on the Sabbath day, right? Hopefully we're clear about that. Good Friday was moving into the Passover. So before sunset, you had to get them off the cross and in the tomb because you can't do work after the sunset. And so all day on the Passover, they couldn't go out there. So now on Sunday, they can go out and finish the job and treat the body correctly. Very clearly, none of these women are anticipating the resurrection. None. They go and see the stone is rolled away. So they all run back and say, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid him. Now, this is important. This goes back to St. Luke. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. They were perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, as if they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you that he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day be raised. And remembering his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, here's where St. Luke gives names. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told all this to the apostles. So a lot of ladies. Ladies like to do things together. That's Ladies do that. So what happens on the resurrection? The ladies go out to the tomb, find the stone rolled away. Mark and Matthew account this. Mark and Matthew call them angels directly. Luke says two men in dazzling white. Angels, 
right? So it's the angelic testimony. It's the presence. Where are the angels? Around divine things. The angels are around the divine, all right? The angel Gabriel appears to Mary because she's going to bear God, etc. Angels around divine things. And what do they do? They testify. Remember what he said to you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified on the third day be raised. And then it says, they remembered his words. And off they go to announce. So they're getting what? The Paschal mystery, what we call it. Remember the Paschal. What matters here? Remember the Paschal mystery. You had to be handed over to be sinners and be raised. Remember Galilee. All that wonderful stuff he did and said. Why does it matter? Because he was handed over to sinners and crucified and raised. That's why it matters. He was handed over to sinners and crucified and raised. When they remembered. They go to the tomb. It's open. They adore. because It's wild. And they remember. And they go tell the other 11. Okay, this is where John really picks up. Now you can, might understand why John records these more particularly. Because he's one of the two. Right? Luke is not one of the two. There's a really open question of whether Luke was in the upper room at that time or not. It is generally assumed that St. Luke was one of the 72 disciples. If you remember that account, he's the Lord's Son of the 72, two by two, that St. Luke is in that group of 72. Whether or not he was back in Jerusalem on the Easter Sunday is open to question. It seems like he is. But he does not refer to himself. Interestingly, St. Luke writes the Acts of the Apostles and refers to himself a bunch of times in the Acts of the Apostles, but does not refer to himself in the Gospels. That's why we don't say definitively he was there. But it seems very plausibly he was there. That's why he can name all the ladies. St. John is not interested in naming all the ladies because he's saying that St. John at the cross, right, He describes the crucifixion much more clearly than any of the other gospel writers do for two reasons. One, crucifixion is horrifying and gross. And in first century Palestine, you did not need someone to tell you what crucifixion was. You saw it. You knew it. I mean, the Romans crucified people all the time. So number one, you didn't describe it because it's nasty, it's awful. And people knew it. A group of people this big... There would have been people who had friends and relatives crucified. They don't need me to describe it for them. Now, St. John does not describe it in totality, but gives a much more clear description, particularly about what he says from the Holy Cross, because he was right there, about the Virgin Mothers being handed over to all Christian believers, because he was there, and he concludes it with the piercing of the side and out blood, blood and water. If you know that, that gospel verse in John 23, the disciple who, saw, who testified this saw it, and his testimony is true, so that you may believe. So John is seeing it personally. He's doing the same thing now, because he's one of the two. Okay. So they've taken away the Lord. We don't know where he put him. And they're all back in a while. They both ran. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooped to look in. He saw the linen cloth lying there but did not go in. St. John is generally presumed to be a younger man. St. Peter, an older man. It seems reasonable that he would run faster. It's interesting that it got put in there. A little braggadocious, like you might be the Pope, but I'm faster than you. I don't know, that kind of thing. (laughs) 
Get up, old man. Here you gotta go. All right. So it's it's, it's a curious line. Anyways, right. But it's also, and this will point to, to later lessons, John sees, but he waits for Peter to go in, right? This is a preface of the primacy of St. Peter amongst the apostles. Even in the bearing of witness to the tomb, John is there first. He was at the cross. He's the beloved disciple. He is the one to whom the Lord entrusts the Virgin Mary. But Simon, son of John, named Peter, on the rock I will build my church, he goes in first. St. John, on a moral level, St. John's like, you denied, I was there, I go in first. But he understands, again, I will, that's the later class, but this is that first witness to the primacy of Petrine faith. Simon Peter came in and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying and the napkin which had been on his head. This is now the second time St. John mentions the cloth, right? Notice, St. John does not bear witness to an empty tomb. He bears witness to a tomb that has linen cloths lying in it. Okay, remember this. This is essentially important. I know I'm not going to be too crooked. We say empty tomb stuff all the time. And fair enough, I know what people mean by it. But to be clear, they do not testify to an empty tomb. They testify to a tomb that has a rock in it that where he was laid, which you can go to today in Jerusalem and touch it, and linen cloths. He does not bear witness to an empty tomb. Right. Now again, I don't, I don't want to be critical of empty tomb language. I understand what people mean. They mean the right thing, but they don't bear witness. Right. They saw the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Such a fascinating line. He saw and believed, but did not know the scripture. Because they haven't seen the risen Jesus yet. That's the knowing of the scripture. So we get the scene. Ladies go out early. Stone rolled out. They go back. Tell the disciples, Peter and John run out. See, no angels, right? Who testified to the women. Who knows what those ladies are back in the upper room talking about, right? They got to be jacked up, fired up. Hmm? They see the linen cloths and they go back. Now the next verse, 2011 but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She obviously came back with them, all right? Or after them. Something of that nature. Mary Magdalene is with the ladies, goes back, testifies, tomb empty, saw the angels. Peter and John go out. Mary Magdalene also comes out, whether with them directly or right at whatever it is. She comes back out. And she stands weeping outside the tomb. And as she stooped to look into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet. Now, this is a fascinating question, which we're not certain of. Did Peter and John take the linen cloth and the cloth rolled up at the head? 
seems yes, but it's not stated. Right? Because after the reference to the clot, they don't reference it again. Now it's angels, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain and say, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. This is something that is beautifully essential in the enduring mark of the witness of the resurrection. The relics of the resurrection, the, to the shroud and the napkin, are taken away. The angelic witness, which first said, why do you seek the living among the dead, right? Great. <laughs> There's a great rejoice. Because he was crucified the other day, that's why, all right? Smart guy. You know, but you don't talk back to angels, that's bad policy, all right? You know why I seek the right? Why now it's it's why are you weeping? Right? You you know the testimony. Why are you sad? They've taken him in a way, and I don't know where they've lain him. Right? Her faith is quavering. She's again, we all know Mary Magdalene was a lover, right? She, she's a crier, too, right? Crying is her thing. She cries a number of times in the gospel. She's the one who sits at the feet of Jesus. She's the one who wipes his feet with her hair. She's got to be near. Now, saying this, I don't remember this, saying this, she turned around Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You're starting to get the ridiculousness of it. It's really hard for one person to carry a dead body by themselves. Like it's, how would this guy have even, but she's just in the emotions. Of it. She needs to see. In a certain sense, she's a doubting Thomas before. Doubting Thomas. She's not called that because she did have great faith. I'm not saying that as a mocking thing, but I mean, she's got to see. Ain't, you know, angels are great and everything, but like... The other ladies are still hanging out, chatting it up. We saw the angels, and they said, he's alive, and this is awesome. But she is the icon of those who need a little more, Right? Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned in to said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then the famous line in Latin, Nolo me tangere. Right? Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Again, one of the most fascinating lines. Nolo me tangere means literally do not touch me. That seems like, it seems like the most precise translation is don't touch me. But it doesn't seem like the rest of that sentence is conveying like, don't touch me. Right? But don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brethren and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
And she told them all the, the things he had said to her. Now, we're going to stop our scriptural account there. Next week is confession, which is the evening of that first day of the resurrection. Right? But now we've got the enduring account. Seeing the Lord actually resurrected. Hearing him say that phrase, do not hold on to me. I preached this on Easter, but just a little reminder, we'll explore this in later sessions. Jesus says that because he is about to emphasize the power of his sacramental reality. There's no touching until the reinforcement of the Holy Eucharist on the road to Emmaus. Because we're on, and again, we're going to cover this in later sessions. There's all kind, Jesus appears to all sorts of people, all kinds of places, okay? We're just sticking with the heart of that enduring testimony. So he's going to emphasize the Eucharistic reality at Road to Emmaus in the afternoon, and then the evening confession. And remember when he emphasizes confession, shows what? His hands and his side. Touch away, right? After the sacramental realities are emphasized, touch away. Do you have anything to eat? I'll eat. Do you want to put your hands in here? Probably said it more pious. You know what I'm saying? Like, touch. Let's hug. Let's, you know, hug it out, bro. Like, here we are. This is awesome. I'm trying, I mean, I'm, I don't want to be silly. It's hard to put yourself into that reality. Here's the man who you gave up everything for, who said he was God, but that was kind of weird, but we were into it. And said he had to die, but I mean, that doesn't really happen. So, oh, now they're resting and crucifying. This is super bad. Let's get the heck out of here. Everything's falling apart. He's alive. Everything he said is, is as true and more. I'm not dead in my sin anymore because I saw what happened when he paid the penalty. And now he's overcome it in life. Now, this is the enduring testimony. What I want to build up to and spend the last... 15 minutes of class on are those two enduring marks. The burial cloth and the napkin. These things matter. The testimony of the apostles matters more. Hmm? They preach it. They suffer for it. They die for it. They work miracles in its name. right? And has forever. St. Boniface goes into the pagan heart of Germany in the 400s and preaches the resurrection and converts people and is executed and martyred, right? and so on and so forth. St. Eric of Sweden, yeah, Eric, huge awesome beard, he did, it was great. All right. Preach the gospel to the pagan Swedes and the glory of the resurrection, martyred, dead. Faith grows everywhere. Wherever you preach the resurrection unto suffering, Faith grows. That's the heart of its power. When people have massive conversions, they almost always testify to seeing the risen Jesus. Okay. But there are a couple enduring marks. Mo the single, singular best book I can recommend is this book called The True Icon by a man named Paul Bade, B-A-D-D-E, Paul Bade, B-A-D-D-E, titled The True Icon, subtitled From the Shroud of Turin to the Veil of Monopello. Because what is called the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth. 
what is called the veil of Montepello is the cloth that covered his face. Right? I want to be clear about that. The Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth. The veil of Montepello is the cloth that covered his face. Okay, let's start with the shroud. This book, published early this year, is called A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. It's, there are huge fat books about the Shroud of Turin. This one's not that big and fat. It only has one picture, but it's one of the best pictures of the shroud I've ever seen in my life because it points out that's the shroud, what every little thing is on the shroud. Great book, retails for whatever it does. Seventeen ninety five. There you go. Right. Have you seen, did you see the the copy on yeah. they didn't have it when I was there but I did buy this book there okay. just the other day All right. so now first thing I would like to mention non-Christian testimonies to the resurrection what's really great about this, this is the, I've seen all these citations before but never just in a straight line that this author has in him alright so here are some Here's a list of non-Christian testimonies. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're just saying these people are all talking about this. It's, they're mostly saying it's stupid, but they're t- saying they're right. So Tacitus, a Roman senator and historian, writing to the emperor Nero about the year 75, all right, 75 A.D. This Christus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea. And now they claim that he is alive. He was crucified and they claim he's alive. Mm -hmm. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian working for the Roman Empire in Jerusalem from about the year 60 through the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70. He was there. He recorded firsthand when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. Right? Now he's writing about the reign of King Herod and Pontius Pilate when he writes, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. His cause lives on, for they say he is alive. Right. Testimony of the death and resurrection from non-believers. Pliny the Younger, the Roman governor in Asia Minor, wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan in the year 112, what he had learned about Christians. Quote, They are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, and they sing a hymn in alternate verses to Christ as to a God who they claim was dead, but now is alive, right? Talking about Sunday Mass. <coughs> Lucian of Samosata, a Greek poet who wrote this mocking Christians around the year 125. The Christians worship this man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account, though they say he's alive. 
And lastly, the Roman historian Suetonius, writing around the year 70, the Jews constantly make disturbances because of this Christ who was crucified and they say is alive. Thus the emperor had them expelled from Rome. Suetonius, S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S. I only bring these up because it's really only happened since about the late 1800s that you find people denying that Jesus ever, how do you know Jesus existed and all of this. These quotations are most helpful that these are people who are non-believers, contemporaries of the apostles, saying there was this person, Jesus, who was crucified. These people say he's alive, right? That is the Christian narrative. Now I preface that to talking about the Shroud of Turin and the Veil of Montepello because... And again, there are huge books about the Shroud and the Veil. But to be very clear, the Shroud of Turin, which is a woven linen cloth that carbon dates to the first century, that pollen analysis dates to Palestine. If you want to go all that nerdy, that stuff. It's 14, roughly 14 feet long by 4 feet wide. So in the way that those shrouds, you open it up, you lay the body on it, fold it over, and tuck in the sides. That's how they, they did it. Okay. The man on the shroud was 5 feet 11 inches tall. I'm 5 feet 11 inches tall, right? Just saying. <laughs> 5 feet 11 inches tall. Who was scourged badly who has piercings here and here they're not sure if it's pierced this direct like this direction because when you crucified someone you would either pierce them through the wrist because that bone can hold or you pierce them right you've got a tendon that runs right through here that grotesquely enough the Nazis did these tests in their perversity the, uh, one of those tendons can hold 150 pounds. So you could crucify someone through this direction and hold, they could hold up across, right? And most uniquely has all kinds of little piercing marks around his head. Romans did not put crowns of thorns on people as a regular rule. What is most fascinating about the shroud, when you see the self, there's these vague outlines of blood marks and so forth. It's when they first took pictures of it and they did digital scans on it, they found that the shroud itself is like a photograph that you can shine light on to give a photographical negative. And in the negative, you see the face and the whole body, every mark of the whole. So the actual miracle of the shroud, right? The shroud is holding blood stains and marks, but there is at a microscopic level, a photograph on the shroud. Now, why is this important? It's important for three reasons. Number one reason, it's impossible to do in the first century 
and it's impossible to replicate in contemporary times. Right? So not only is there no paint, we can get into all this, there's no paint on the shroud, there's none of that kind of stuff. There's no way to create, in a sense, a very small, what you would have to do is create an atomic reaction at a very, very, very low level in order to leave this imprint. The closest thing they have found to this is wall prints in Hiroshima. When that nuclear explosion happened, it would create a flash and it basically created a photographic negative of the people on wall, horrifying as that is. So that's what this was like. Now remember, in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, a great shining light and a thunderquake, right? Where it knocks all the soldiers dead. That's in Mark's Gospel. A great shining light and it knocks all the soldiers dead. Because the question is, what's the resurrection like? It seems to be that what the shroud does is captures the image of the dead Christ at the moment of the resurrection. It's the moment from the dead to life that the soul of Christ is infused back into his human body and he creates this nearly like quasi-atomic reaction that leaves a photographic negative of the body of the dead Christ on the Shroud of Turin. That then moves to the Vale of Montepello because before, so what happened? The body of Christ, the whole linen is laid out. His body is laid on the tomb. Then, in Jewish burial rites, the nearest relative, the spouse, if still living, if not, the children, if no children, a living parent. If no living parent, then someone close to him. So the mother of Jesus would have placed this veil. A veil, a napkin, that is made entirely of woven muscle silk. Right, like little mussels in the water, they produce a very small amount of silk that can be dried out and woven together. This was very prominent in First Delhi, Palestine. There are very, very few people that can do this today. But it was not uncommon for people, especially wealthier people, to have these for burial veils. So like Joseph of Arimathea would have had such a veil. Now this veil, that would have been, again, the cover... We don't do this anymore. They do it with the popes. We generally don't do that. They don't veil the face before you cover them over. So this veil is sitting on the face of Christ in the moment of this resurrection. What you have on the shroud is the photographic representation of the dead Christ. What you have on the veil of Manupello is the face of Christ at the moment of the resurrection. So the image on the veil of Manupello, again, Four simple things about that in the Vale of Montepello. Carbon dates to the first century. Contains dust and pollen found in first century Palestine. Has on it an image of miraculous origin. It's not paint. It's not etched. You can't paint. Uh, there's no paint even today that sticks to muscle silk. You can't paint on it, yet there is this image, which, like Our Lady of Guadalupe, hovers just ever so microscopically above the veil. And the only thing that changes the look of the face is 
the light. In the dark, you see the miraculous image as it is. It, in a sense, emits its own light. Artificial light does nothing to it. I've seen this in person numerous times. Only the natural sunlight will change it, right? God from God, light from light. True God from true God. When they placed the, that veil over the top of the shroud, it, exactly. That's the last mark. The when they place, you're right, you've read the, when they took the veil of Montepello and the face on the shroud of Turin, and you do, like if you do facial recognition, terrifying as all that is, all right? The way you do facial recognition to recognize you or you or you from others, the two faces are the same face. One is the dead face, one is the living face. These relics were in the hands of Christians forever until the Protestant revolts, right? I want to be mindful of something. The Relic of the Shroud and the Veil of Montepello. We don't have time to go into the whole... All right, you can read the books to get the whole play by play. Right? They were on... Bent. You go through ancient iconography. You notice something. Icons change in about the 1500s where all of a sudden the face of Christ, the eyes are closed. Before that, in the holy face, the eyes open. Because on the Veil of Montepello... The eyes are open. This is contradistinction to what is called the Veil of Veronica. In St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is what's called the Veil of Veronica. The Veil of Veronica, I believe personally, it's a disputed question, I believe personally the Veil of Veronica was lost to history. A lot of things were, we can get into that briefly, I'll talk about that in just a moment, why a lot of things were lost to history. I think the Veil of Veronica was lost to history. There's a clear record of the Veil of Montepello. It's in Jerusalem. It goes to Antioch where Peter was. It's clearly with St. Andrew in what would eventually be called Constantinople. It stayed there for centuries. That's why the banners of all of the emperors of the Eastern Empire, guess what they had on the imperial banners? The face of Jesus. And not closed, dead eyes, open, living eyes, because this was the great relic. When the Muslim hordes are coming through, it goes off to Rome. It was in St. Peter's for about two and a half centuries until old St. Peter's, built in the year 314 by the Emperor Constantine, is torn down. Pope Julius II, Michelangelo, people like that. All right, You can watch uh, The Agony and the Ecstasy has a good dramatic representation of it. When... St. Peter's being... Because you have to remember, this is the 1500s. They don't have, you know, like storage units since it's very different, right? So they sent it off like what they did with the shroud. They sent it off to no man's land where it's nearly impossible to get to, to keep it safe, right? If you go to Montepelle, right? Again, modern life makes it... You go to Montepelle, you realize in the 1600s, it would have been a whale to get there. So they're off to there. Now what happens, you have to understand, in the life of history, you've got... The Protestant Revolt, beginning of the Thirty Years' War, the sack of Rome under Charles V, right? The army of Charles V, the ostensibly Catholic, we need to get into all that whole bit and how the French screwed everything up. That's a different book entirely, right? Why does Protestantism exist today? The French, well, that's a longer, different history book. 
Long story short, the Catholic army lays siege to and sacks the city of Rome, burns the city almost to the ground, books destroyed, relics, I mean, huge numbers of things were lost and destroyed. The shroud and the veil not, because they got them out. Now, when all that, that, all of that sort of quiets down as they're starting to build, you have to remember, old St. Peter's tore down in 1545, the new one's not dedicated until the late 1600s, I mean, over a century. And they're trying to put things back together. Well, during the course of all that history, you have a number of revolutions that come, right? The Muslim siege of Vienna, that's really close to home. You have when Napoleon comes through, basically a century after that, Napoleon also sacked, right? Napoleon famously empties out the entire Vatican Library and burns everything. Right? That's all the, most all of the manuscripts, all the first that were, because Napoleon just out of Paris, out of Rome, out of Vienna, hauled everything out and just burned it in huge piles. It's a horror. Right? Well, when all of that finally settles down, First World War, Second World War, is the reemergence of the shroud and the veil. Now, I believe what Paul Bade believes. That the endless testimony of the resurrection that the apostles bore witness to lives in the life of the church. You don't need a shroud and a veil to believe in the resurrection. Lots of people believe in the resurrection never even heard of it. But God has raised up in our own day. Now there's all kinds of modern technology that we can confirm the date. We can confirm the miraculous nature of the images. You can go and see them. Right? You can act, it's, someone can actually travel from North America. To, it's possible. It was virtually impossible in the 1200s, right? You can go see the veil of Manapello and know that the living, resurrected Christ left icons for the world to know and see. And they testify to that firmness to our own I am not saying that totality of faith rests on these images. I'm saying they are two of the great lasting marks that testify to the resurrection of Jesus in miraculous, incontrovertible power. That you can see and believe. All right. So that is the resurrection narrative and its lasting effects. I will close simply by saying most of us know the apostles went and preached this message to the ends of the earth. What's less commonly known is what Mary Magdalene did. You can go visit the tomb of Mary Magdalene outside of Paris. She went to Gaul with some of the apostles and that's where she lived and died uh, in a life of prayer and penance. There's a great book recently published by Ignatius Press. I shouldn't say it's a great book. I have, people I really trust have recommended it to me. It's called Mary Magdalene by Ignatius Press. Right? So those marks of the resurrection endure. Okay? That's where I'd like to pause now and take time if there are any questions or comments to be made on what I have said. Yes, Molly? Okay. Can you speculate on where um, the Blessed Mother was? I mean, her, her son is dead. Why is she not at the tomb? The second question I have is um, the flash, the negative photograph that you talked about for... Uh, was this present at Lazarus's uh, resurrection? And the third question I had was, is there DNA or is there anything on any of the burial cloth or the, the napkin? Okay, three good questions, three answers. 
Why is the Blessed Mother, where, where is she? All right. So, of course, Our Lady was remanded into the care of St. John on the Holy Cross. So wherever he was, presumably she was. Traditional, the fathers of the church. St. Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John, says that our Lord first appeared early, early in the morning to the Blessed Mother. That she didn't go out to the tomb because she already knew it was alive, that before he appeared to Mary Magdalene, he appeared to her. Right? That's not accounted in the Gospels, but that's what St. Polycarp, who knew St. John, says happened. Seems reasonable that he would appear to her. First, that she first had the perfection of faith. She didn't need to see the empty tomb. That's the theological answer. The church father Polycarp says our Lord appeared to her first so she didn't have to go. Why make mom run all around? She's been through enough. She didn't have to do that. All right. Well, is there any DNA on the shroud? Now, there is blood on the shroud where the blood type has been tested. What's interesting about the blood on the shroud, the blood type on the shroud matches the blood type of all the Eucharistic miracles. All Eucharistic miracles that have been validated all have the same blood type. That's a, that's a later lecture as well. I am not aware of any DNA breakdown that has been done to see if they're matched any DNA strains. Um, this book does not reference that, if that has been done so and the last question oh Lazarus one thing that's very important is because Christ raises a number of people from the dead but like the resurrection of Lazarus is more like a reanimate because Lazarus dies again right the the young man the son of the widow he dies again so no there those resurrections are not uh, cosmic or um divine as, they're divine acts, but their resurrections are not divine. So those resurrections are a difference in kind because all those people would still die. Lazarus would die again, the widow of the, the son of the widow of Nain, he would die again. The little girl that says Talitha Kum, she would die again. So their resurrections are different. Okay. The 72? Uh, It's not said that explicitly. Uh, The Apostle St. Paul talks about he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and to the other Apostles, and then to 500 people at once. St. Paul says there was an appearance of the resurrected Christ to 500 people at one time. What's not known is, were those 72 disciples in the upper room, right? What, like when the Gospels talk about the Last Supper, it's clear the 12 were right around Jesus, but there's other people in the room as well. If you go to the upper room, you can see it could probably hold about 100 people. So how many were there? How many, when they all fled at the crucifixion, how many went there? How many came back? How many people were in the room on Easter night? It doesn't say. There are apostles who will raise people from the dead after Pentecost. So the answer is yes with explanation. How many people received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost? Twelve. All right. 
How many received the Holy Spirit from their hands later on? Many, 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 many. But that's, there's a difference between Pentecost, who gives them endless power in the resurrected Christ, and earlier when Jesus says to the 72, go out, right? Cast out demons, heal the sick. Our Lord clearly conveys a particular power to them, but that's different from the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. Pat, did you have a question? Yeah, the apostles heard multiple times from Jesus that he would be raised from the dead, and yet they did not understand, they did not believe. Why? Seems anachronistic, right? Because there's that curious line, they discuss what raising from the dead meant. Now again, we are the children of two millennia of religious influence that's centered around a man who came back from the dead. So as remarkable as it sounds, relatively ordinary, right? All kinds of movies and TV shows make mockeries of this, right? Monty Python famously did it, so on. So we live in an era where raising from the dead is at the very center of our culture. Uh, if you live in a part of the world where there is just mass death all the time, and that's one thing that's it is hard for us to appreciate the deathly culture that surrounded first century Palestine that the Roman Empire kept in control at the harsh edge of a sword. Uh, political leaders, religious revolutionaries were getting executed constantly. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but all the time. I mean, sending out people to be crucified was de rigueur for Pontius Pilate. I mean, this is the way you kept people in control. So when you're surrounded that kind of reality, a guy who does all these awesome things. I mean, you have to understand this context. It's miraculous feedings. It's miraculous healings. It's raising people from the dead. And you enter into Jerusalem, and it's palms and hosannas. The sun. I mean, this is awesome. Like, you're jacked up about it, Right? And then it's either the next day or two days later, he scourges and cleanses the temple, right? And it's like, okay. And now everyone is super peeved at him. And then he goes and hangs out in Bethany. And he comes back in for Passover. And all of this glory is now stuck in this contextualization of he's teed off everybody by what he did at the temple. Destroy this temple in three days. I mean, he's provoking. He's saying, all this is false and invalid and you all know it. Destroy this temple in three days. I, all of a sudden, all that is gone and all you've got is the temple priesthood that hates your guts and the Romans who are super annoyed that you caused all this rhyme and ruckus and now you're in at the last Supper, right? You read the accounts in St. Luke of the Last Supper. You read the narratives in the Last Supper. Yeah, I much want to teach you. We cannot hear it now. Where I am going, you cannot follow. Now it's like, oh, God, what's all this about? I mean, you have to put yourself in that mindset. You're like, everything's been totally turned on its head. It's now it's just about pure faith. It's not just trying to remember when he said a month ago, I have to be scourged and raised from the dead, right? There's that scene in The Passion of the Christ where it's showing St. John watching Christ being raised up on the cross and it flashes between the raising of the crucifixion and Jesus saying, 
this is my body, which will be given up for you. And if you notice those two scenes, it's really nice. It's warm, and it's candlelit, and there's the, it's all very nice, right? They did the washing of the feet and the whole bit. And now after this, you've seen him sweating blood, and he gets arrested and doesn't do anything. And then they pack the court and are accusing you of this, that, and the other. And all you've seen is people get crucified all live long day. It's pretty easy to understand why they're like, I'm not sure what's going on here. I don't know if that helps. I'm trying to frame the content. Like, this is a super intense. I'm not trying to make fun of the liturgy, but it's not chanting the Passion on Good Friday. You know, it's, it's just a very different reality. Everyone can understand why the Virgin Mary is there. She's mom. Mom shows up. That's kind of the way of things. Mary Magdalene was a super hanger-on, so it's not too shocking. She's there. Just wherever he's at, I'm there. All right. St. John's kind of the impressive one in the whole. I'm not trying to say Mary Magdalene's not impressive. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, you know, like, he's the one. So that's, I think, why they, like, who can understand all of this? To us, it seems like, duh, but we're looking back. We're at Review Mirror in 20 centuries. Okay, so in brief, ladies go out to the tomb, see the angels, come back. Peter, J- Peter and John and Mary Magdalene go back out again, see the shroud and the veil. Take him, Mary Magdalene sees him. Teacher, this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Witness of the resurrection. Now, Christ is off screen, right? Appearing to the Virgin Mary, then appearing to Mary Magdalene saying, don't touch me. Now again, St. Paul says he appeared to Peter. The Father of the Church say that on Peter's way back, our Lord appeared to him. That's not accounted in the Gospels, but that's what... When St. Paul says he appeared to Cephas, that our Lord appears to Peter on his way back to the upper room. Then concurrently in that morning, there's the two disciples going off to Emmaus. And our Lord appears to them and appears to spend some time with them. He's walking them somewhere from outside of Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're arriving in Emmaus near dinner time. That's when they don't recognize him, right? That's when they don't recognize him until the... And he's, again, it doesn't say how long, but he's with them for a while, referring to the sacred scriptures. Then he vanishes from their sight when they are breaking of the bread. And then it's post-dinner. It's evening. It's nighttime after dinner when he appears to the apostles in the upper room and says, peace be with you, and shows his hands on his side. And then it's a week later when he appears to Thomas, well, to the apostles, and that's a week later. What was the significance that they could now touch him? Again, sacramental reality. Christ is emphasizing the sacraments. Don't touch me until later that afternoon, Eucharist on the road to Emmaus. Right? And then that evening, breathe the Holy Spirit and give confession. Right? So after bread and Eucharist is reinforced, after Holy Spirit breathing, I, I want to be I want to know how Jesus was like, not even like, oh, that kind of thing, right? It smells like 
red wine and steak, right? Mm -hmm. And forgives, right? So sacrament, he's eating, sacraments are how you will touch me. Sacraments are how you will touch me. Sacraments are how you will touch me. Now that sacraments are real, touch away. When you don't yet understand sacraments are real, no, 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 no touch. That ascending to my father and your father, the link between heaven and earth is not yet established. What's the link between heaven and earth? Sacraments, sacraments, sacraments are the link. What tethers heaven to earth? The mass. What tethers your soul to heaven? Your baptism in the state of grace. What tethers married people together? Marriage, etc. Okay, right, so sacraments, heaven, ascend to my father. The ascend to my father and your father, some church fathers argue that Jesus did go up to heaven and then come back down again, but that's not testified to. It's testified in the Gospel of St. John says, I've not yet ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So some of the church fathers interpret that as Jesus rises from the dead, appears to people, shows the glory of the resurrection to the heavenly court. Makes sense, right? And then comes back down and teaches about the mysteries of the kingdom of God for 50 days. We'll cover that later, right? Remember Jesus, well, 40 days. He's on earth for 40 days after the resurrection. And we'll cover a lot of those accounts. He appears on the Sea of Tiberias up in, that's very important too. Because they actually do go back to Galilee. We'll get to that. They actually do go back to Galilee because that's where he has to seal the deal in Galilee. This is what the life of the church will be like. In Galilee, he teaches that. In Jerusalem, sacraments, forgiveness of sins at the end of the earth. In Galilee, it's the constitution of the church, the ordinary life. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's, that's future classes and we're at we're approaching time. Anything else? Are you going to talk at all about the um, reason why he had to descend into hell? I will talk about why he descended into hell on the session on confession. Sort of what's Jesus doing on Holy Saturday kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Does the church put much uh, emphasis on mystics? Yeah, but Sister Avila and Peter, I can't remember which one they had to show how the devil intertwined all the entire process. So, church loves mystics. All about mystics, right? Teresa of Avila, Anne Catherine Emmerich, on and on, right? Anne Catherine Emmerich has a whole, like the whole life of Jesus appears to her. But again, this is a little bit, this is between revelation and inspiration. Mystics received inspiration. They can be believed, but don't have to be. Revelation must be believed. Does that make sense? So one of the reasons why I didn't bring mystics into this is because you don't have to believe it and be in good standing. Well, the reason why I bought the veil of Manapello and the Shroud of Turin into this is because these are the validated marks of revelation. This is revelation in our midst. This is what God wanted to remain on earth at the end of time to give faith. And I personally believe what Paul Body, Grant, I met Paul Body, I'm friends with him. I like him a lot. I think he's done, I think in 100 years he'll be known as a great hero of the faith, because I think God wants these things to be known in a godless era. When did the Christian believers trot all these things around? In first century apostolic Christendom. Here's our story, here's our proof. 
Come see. Here, I'm the apostle that bore witness to the resurrection. Here it is. Right? Sidebar. Not to, I'll stop soon. St. James goes to Iberia, Spain. Guess what they don't let him have? The veil or the shroud. There's one of the famous first icons of our Lord in Spain. Somebody tried to copy the veil of Monopelo in the first icon. There's also one in Odessa. Okay, we're not going to get There's all this kinds of stuff. Read the books. Turn off Netflix, read the books. <laughs> there is the veil in Odessa. The first icons. But it doesn't go well. That's why, does anyone know where the first Marian apparition is? Saragossa in Spain. El Pilar. While Our Lady lived, she appeared to St. James and said, it's okay, buddy, keep going. It's tough haul because you don't have the veil. Right? When they went to Gaul, who did they have? Eldest daughter of the church, France. Who's that? Mary Magdalene. I saw. Right? Who else? Veil, shroud. So I think these are two of the enduring testimonies. I think we need to pray that the popes will use these things mightily. That's my opinion. Pray that the popes will use these. Because now both of these things are for... In 1983, the Dukes of Savoy, the royal family of Savoy, whom I'm sure you all know and love, all right, who had possession of the shroud, gave it to the Holy See. To the Vatican. The friars of Montepello gave the veil to the Holy See. Pope Benedict XVI went to see the veil of Montepello, but never brought it into St. Peter's. He did bring the icon of Our Lady. That's it. That's, we'll get too far afield from that, right? So pray that the popes bring these things out and before the world use them to testify to the might of the resurrection. And do a little bit of St. Paul's work. If in this world only we have hope, that's silly. I would not be celibate if there's no heaven. Thank you much. Etc. Anyways, so pray for that. The likelihood that you're going to get on an airplane and fly to Montepello is probably pretty limited, but it's still there. Have the popes bring it down and show all the world and testify to risen Jesus. Mm -hmm. all right. And have great confidence, right, that there are these marks left in the world, that the resurrection of Jesus... Now we're going to talk... All the rest of the classes here are sort of like effects of the resurrection, mighty effects of the, how the church is constituted around the resurrection of our Lord. But these are the Marty Marks. All right, it's quarter to nine. We shall go to bed. In the name of the Father, and Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May the Lord bless you and yours in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have a good evening, everyone.